Welcome to the podcast for the NIH seed-funded R25 Education Grant, Discovering the Value of Imaging, administered by the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering. Today we'll be covering Section 2, General Machine Learning Papers. The goal of this section is to help continue to consolidate information from the principal section of the course and really highlight core concepts as we begin to read more in-depth and complicated papers. And the second goal is to really discuss important concepts with a bent toward imaging where we can. The papers you're responsible for reading for today are A Few Useful Things to Know About Machine Learning by Pedro Domingos and Guidelines for Developing and Reporting Machine Learning Predictive Models in Biomedical Research, a multidisciplinary view by Luo, Luo and colleagues. So why did I choose these papers? Well, first, I wanted to prepare you to think critically about papers that we'll read in the future. The principles in the first paper and the checklist in the sef- second paper serve as conceptual frameworks for understanding and critiquing the papers that we'll read. Paper one is more about broad principles of machine learning, and some of these we've covered already in the, uh, uh, in the principles course. Um, but paper two is more an enumeration of these principles captured in a general checklist. And it's essentially a checklist for reviewing these types of papers in your own fields. So let's go ahead and start with paper one. A few useful things to know about machine learning. There's a lot of content in this paper. Uh, some of it is sort of of general theoretical interest, um, but definitely very practical. However, I'm only going to focus on a few points uh, that I think are important to know, and those points especially uh, regarding imaging applications. The first important point is generalization. Why are we building machine learning models? Well, the only reason we're building machine learning models is so that we can predict something in the future or classify something. And the idea is that we, every model we build, we want to know if it will work on data that has never seen before. So one of the points made in this paper is that it's very easy to get very good performance with some of these models if you just test on the training data. And that's what people do, especially in the early days of machine learning. People would build a machine learning model and then they would build it on some training data, and then they would apply that to the same data, and then realize that they got some really great performance. And that's a, clearly an instance of overfitting, which we'll talk about before, but that's not really the point of generalization. In true generalization, what you do is um, you have sometimes a cross-validation protocol where you, know, you take 100% of the data, you break into 80% for training, and you test on the 20%, and 20% represents data that the model has never seen before. And that's sort of the idea behind having uh, um, uh, validation data to test your data on. Now, an important point about generalization is also the idea of data leakage. And this is also a point that I think a lot about, is whether the data that we've captured is in any way contaminated by inputs from the future, or by some sort of regularities in how the data is captured. So an example of this is in a competition a while back to predict whether uh, patients had pneumonia from their IC9 codes. And when the authors generated the data set, uh, they looked at the IC9 codes and then they just removed the ones uh, randomly that had pneumonia uh, and others uh, that did not. That posed a problem because what ended up happening is that they didn't take into account the gaps that were in the data. Uh, And so there would be instances of where you'd have 
um, a primary diagnosis of pneumonia, um, and then second, third, and fourth, and they forgot to take away the second, third, and fourth uh, parts. And so what ended up happening was they ended up having um, to be able to identify patients that had pneumonia simply by the fact they didn't have, uh, you know, the, the numeric order of the diagnosis codes was not correct. And so sometimes that kind of information can sort of leak into your training data. So you end up learning information uh, that that uh, you learning end up learning a pattern in the data that would not that is from the future and would not have existed otherwise. Another related and very important point uh, to generalization is overfitting. Overfitting is when you have a model that essentially fits the, the training data perfectly well but just doesn't generalize to data it's never seen before. And this is a constant worry that we have as machine learning practitioners. And classifiers nowadays are so powerful that they can easily take any training data and actually fit it completely well. So how do we detect this? Well, essentially we do break our data sets into training and test sets. Um, and sometimes we run the training data, uh, we build a model with the training data, and then we test it with the training data and see what the performance looks like. And then we apply that to the model. And once we hit it to the testing data, our goal is to find a sweet spot where essentially the model doesn't fit the data, training data too well, while at the same time generalizing to the test data. And this forms the basis of the idea of bias variance discussion in this paper. We won't discuss this further, but a simple Wikipedia search for bias variants or other things will sort of give you a nice uh, uh, additional description of what that is and how it can affect machine learning. Another important point is feature engineering. And this is essentially one of the most important steps that you could possibly do as a machine learning practitioner. And this is where we spend most of our time we're thinking about how to design better classifiers. And this is the key to deep learning and responsible for success. As we talked about in section one, uh, you know, these models perform really, really well because it essentially takes away having to think about what features we need to generate to help our classifier build to work as efficiently, as effectively as possible. And by layering these multiple layers on top of each other in these deep learning frameworks, we're able to force the algorithm to actually try to generate combinations of features on its own that are good uh, for the classification. As the paper suggests, this is an extremely iterative process. And that really bears out as we actually do machine learning projects. And what it typically looks like is, we'll start with the problem, we'll build some very simple features, run the algorithm, see how it performs, look at some of the false positives, look at some of the true positives, see what we can learn to improve the model, and then build more features, and then just iterate, iterate, iterate. And typically, the model performance will slowly start improving as we go along. Another interesting point brought up by this paper is, what do you do once you've built a classifier and trying to improve it? There are really two options. One option is to have a better algorithm. Or number two is to simply get more data. Uh, the recommendation and the one that's probably the most straightforward is, is getting more data. And to the extent that you can do that, uh, that's what I would recommend. Building algorithms themselves can be quite difficult and quite challenging. 
uh, and trying to figure out you know why a, a, a new algorithm would give you better performance and whether it should be worth uh, using is definitely something that requires quite a bit of additional effort and not one that I would recommend right now. However, it is worth trying a new algorithm uh, if it's just in a library of known algorithms. For example, whenever I do analyses, I will typically run uh, Naive Bayes if possible, uh, Random Force, uh, and XGBoost. And those are sort of my core algorithms that I use to see whether they're signal in the data and how much there may possibly be. Another way brought up by this paper that you can get better model performance is by something called ensembling. And ensembling is where you essentially build multiple, multiple models uh, and you can take an average. Uh, and it's sort of a voting algorithm in a sense. Um, if you've ever uh, heard about the wisdom of the crowds, um, that's sort of what it's predicated on uh, very loosely. And the idea is that if you ask multiple opinions of multiple models um, and aggregate the results somehow, you can actually get better classifiers. And this has proven out to be true. Uh, there was a competition many years ago called the Netflix, Netflix Prize, which was a million-dollar co uh, competition, which was trying to identify algorithms that can make better recommendations um, using uh, prior visit data for you know what movies you watched. And the model that ended up winning was an ensemble. It was a conglomeration, I think, of a thousand different models, uh, and taking a sort of a voting type infrastructure to try to identify. Um, movies uh, that users would want to see again. There's three different kinds. Uh, one is called bagging, and bagging is where you essentially randomly sample from the data, and then you build models from that random sample, uh, and then you maintain all those models, and then you use some voting infrastructure at the end. A second way of combining models is using something called boosting. And in this, tra individual training examples have weights, and these weights change so that each new classifier focused on the examples the previous ones tended to get wrong. And finally, the third type of uh, way of combining classifiers is something called stacking, where you essentially take outputs of an individual classifier, and these end up get pushed into a second learner that figures out how best to combine all these different individual outputs from the classifiers to create an even better classifier. And this is a really, really simple way to improve your models very quickly. Uh, there's a lot of standard code out there that, that will build, do this bagging and the boosting and the stacking automatically to produce better models. So that concludes some of the important points from paper one. So let's go on and move on to paper two. Um, so a lot of those theoretical issues that we talked about in paper one and that we highlighted can be enumerated in sort of a checklist type of format. Uh, as defined by paper two. Um, and so I thought the best way to go about this was to sort of look at each of the tables uh, and go through some of uh, the sections within each of those and talk about them. And finally talk a little bit about my own experiences in terms of things I would have added to this checklist. Uh, when I read papers, what I find most lacking uh, with papers of these kinds. And then finally, uh, when I'm reviewing papers to see whether it would be useful for us to implement our institution, what are the, some of the basic things I think about uh, to get to that conclusion? You won't necessarily need the paper in front of you, but I'll be referring to each of the item numbers in the tables as we go along. So let's start with item number one, which is the table title. 
And the topic is really the nature of the study. This one's pretty straightforward. Just identify the report as introducing a predictive model. Um, and that really orients everyone up front as to what your paper is going to be about. Uh, in the abstract, uh, number two, item number two, abstract, uh, this is a structured summary, uh, using the same structure that we always use, background objectives, data sources, uh, performance metrics of the predictive models or models in both point estimates and confidence intervals, and concluding uh, what is the actual practical value of a developed predictive model or models. Moving on to item three is the rationale, uh, and this is probably where you can make the most contribution uh, as the clinical expert, is to really identify the clinical goal and to review that not only with the goal itself, but also how that exists into the current workflow or the current practice. Uh, and really reviewing the current practice and prediction accuracy of an any existing models that you know of. Moving on to item four, the objectives. So state the nature of the study being predictive modeling, define the target of the prediction, identify how the prediction problem may benefit the clinical goal. Moving on to item five, where we want to describe the setting. This is extremely important, and this is where I find most uh, machine learning papers to be very, very um, lacking on, is to really identify the clinical setting for the target predictive model. Um, and this is something that we do really well in medicine. Uh, most randomized controlled trials have uh, some sort of decision tree type of diagram which sort of breaks down the population. And we also provide descriptive statistics of all the variables uh, for uh, individual papers, uh, individual patients in our population. And you'll see this in next week's papers when we're reading about congestive heart failure. In the appendix, they provide a, a, a thorough breakdown of nearly every variable they use and what the breakdown is um, of, those, um, um, of those patients. Um, and also talk a little bit about the institution or the place you are. Um, you know, identify the modeling context. You know, how big is your facility? What is the size? What is the volume? Uh, and how long, uh, how much data are you actually capturing? Item number six is defining the prediction problem. Um, so, you know, it's fairly straightforward, but worth mentioning. Define a measurement for the prediction goal. So, what are you going to use? Are you going to, are you trying to reduce, reduce readmissions per patient? Are you trying to reduce hospitalizations? Um, so, you're even if it's the same patient, uh, and what is that specific outcome? Uh, really say whether this is a retrospective, so you're using prior data, or prospective, so you're using um, a model that you've built already and applying that into the future. Um, do you say whether this is a prognostic problem or a diagnostic problem? I think that's pretty straightforward. Uh, do you say what kind of prediction model this is? Is it a classification? So just organizing people into yes, no's. Uh, regression, so you're trying to identify a target variable that's continuous, or is it survival uh, prediction? and define the success criteria for the prediction. Um, and so are you using some internal validation um, where you're just looking at the model and you're saying, well, how, do we, how well do we predict readmission? Or are you looking external? So you're not only trying to look at reduce readmission, but you're actually trying to see whether it reduces costs or other downstream measures. Moving on to item seven, prepare, prepare the data for model building. And this expands a little bit on describing the setting. Um, so definitely identify the relevant data sources uh, and you know, say if you have ethics approval uh, board, uh, IRB approval. Uh, be explicit in the inclusion and exclusion criteria for the data. How much data did you have? Uh, how big was the sample? 
um, what was the observational unit of the response variable and the predictor variables? Was it at the patient level? Was it at the encounter level? Uh, define the predictor variables themselves if possible. Um, this may not always be possible with imaging types of studies, uh, but to the extent that you have some clinical data available from a, a set number of patients, it's good to report those, uh, even if uh, they you know, are metadata for the images themselves, uh, um, and that's very helpful to have. Um, what kind of pre-processing did you do to the data? Um, you know, did you scale it? Did you uh, interpolate? Did you do other kinds of things to the images to get them ready for classification? Uh, did you do anything to remove outliers, or did you consider everything just one big, you know, group? Um, how are missing values uh, handled? Uh, this may not happen as often in imaging, but it's also good to mention a little bit if, you know, you threw out some data, and hopefully that's covered by the inclusion and exclusion uh, criteria from above. Um, and what kind of uh, splits did you use uh, when you did your validation strategy? So uh, in the theoretical section, we talked a little bit about cross-validation, where you can take 100% of the data, break it down into 80% and 20% splits, uh, and then train on 80% and test on 20%. On well, it's good to be really explicit about what that strategy was. You know, was it a random split? Um, and was it a patient-based split? Um, and saying those um, up front. Uh, the validation metrics, are you using area under the curve? Uh, are you using uh, sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, negative predictive value? Um, and for regression problems, uh, you're looking at uh, normalized root mean squared error. Uh, and what is that exact validation criteria that you're using? When you actually build the predictive model, it is useful to identify some specific um, uh, issues that you may have run into in the building part. So, you know, if you have independent variables that take a single value, trying to identify those. Uh, if you remove redundant uh, in, uh, variables to say that. Um, the number of examples that you ended up producing at the end of the day. Uh, the number of positive examples, the number of negative examples. Saying what particular modeling algorithm you used, logistic regression, random forest, deep learning and why you use those models and also being quite explicit in in how the individual models were optimized um, so how did you you know do all the tweaking in the different dials to um, manage this regularization so that the model doesn't overfit and that's really an important process as well and that's something that I tend to go straight to reading and that's where I often have a lot of comments when I'm reviewing papers because people can, if you have enough dials you can dial the model in such a way that you end up overfitting the data and then you seem to have a system that works really really great but in fact doesn't work that well at all moving on is item nine uh, reporting the final model and performance so Pretty straightforward, report the predictive model, the final model in terms of validation metrics specified in the message section. Uh, there's also a suggestion in this paper of trying to report confidence intervals. Um, and that's kind of interesting. Uh, in the computer science literature, people tend to do lots of point estimates where they have a test set and they, have a, and they just report the point estimate for that particular model. Uh, sometimes when we're building models and writing papers, what we will do is uh, run multiple iterations of a cross-validation split of a tenfold cross-validation or whatever our cross-validation strategy is. Uh, and every time you run that cross-validation, you get a point estimate. And then you just run that 100 times to actually try to generate confidence intervals for uh, the model.
If possible, it is always useful to compare with other models in the literature uh, to see where your model stands. Uh, this turns out to be quite difficult unless there's an actually a published uh, data split that's used. So in the computer science literature, there are uh, published data splits and then everyone uses that uh, particular data split uh, for calculating their um, performance. Especially in the imaging uh, challenges, there's things like ImageNet and other things where um, the labels are exactly the same, the test set is exactly the same, and year after year, uh, the researchers use the same outputs and try to improve performance on that same output. Uh, and that's really useful in comparing to other models in the literature. Typically, if you try to compare to other tasks, um, you know, that's by task, that can be quite difficult um, because differences in the model can really, really uh, make two comparisons apples to oranges rather than apples to apples. And, and this actually occurred quite recently. Uh, so there is an, a huge open source data set called Mimic, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit in the next session, uh, which is a collection of ICU, 60,000 ICU stays. Um, and so there are quite a few models that people have published looking at predicting sepsis uh, in advance. Uh, and there was recently a paper published that essentially said that did a meta review of all these uh, sepsis prediction models and concluded that um, all these different papers basically use different training sets. Uh, and so trying to make comparisons between any of them was not possible. And then finally, um, if usually uh, if you can have an interpretation of the final model, that's always really, really useful. Um, and if you can subpopulate some of the predictive models and try to figure out, you know, well, for what type of images or what type of groups did the model do well versus ones who didn't do well, that's always useful to gain some insight into how well your model is working and also to set yourself up for sort of the next paper or the next experiment to try to improve the existing model. The next uh, item number is 10 is the clinical implications. And I think this is where we have the opportunity to really sell a type of analysis uh, as to where uh, where it's going to be helpful clinically. So report the clinical and implications derived from the obtained predictive performance, and if possible, you know, reporting a dollar amount, even if it's a you know back of the envelope calculation that could be saved with this better prediction, or how could we improve quality of care, you know, through this type of model. The next item number is 11. Uh, so talking about the potential limitations of the model, um, you know, what are potential pitfalls in interpreting the model? Uh, what are issues with generalizability? So if I were to take this model that was built at NYU and try it at UPenn, well, do I do I think that there are any problems with 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 doing that? And what do I imagine running into? And finally. Uh, item number 12 is unexpected results in experiments. And I kind of would rename this in terms of like doing a uh, patient level or a data level analysis where, you know, maybe I will build a model, uh, look at the set of images, and then, uh, you know, take some images that are outliers and look at those and try to do a little bit of qualitative assessment of the actual results. And I find that to be really useful for two reasons. Number one, it helps you gain insight into where the model is working and where it's not working and where it needs some help. And then also, number two, uh, is it helps uh, the readers to get a sense of uh, what the model is learning. 
Uh, and so there are sort of um, ways of trying to get insight into some of these black boxes, especially with deep learning. Um, but none of them are clearly established. And at the end of the day, still looking at some of the false positives and false negatives and where the model is doing well, where the model is not doing well is still very, very useful. So that concludes our run through of sort of the checklist. Um, and I'll just add a couple uh, more comments about what I find uh, when I've been reading you know, these type of papers. Um, number one is actually prospective validations. Um, and oftentimes you don't have to publish this in the primary paper. So usually the first paper that publishes is using retrospective data to build a model and showing some internal validation. Um, but usually the very next thing that I like to see is some prospective validation. So did you actually implement this model and apply it and run it in practice and to sort of get some idea of uh, the performance and, and, and how it worked and, and whether people you know, actually used it? Um, and then the second thing I like to see is comparison to humans. So if you're doing a prospective validation or even doing a retrospective evaluation, taking the same training set, uh, giving some of those images to humans, and trying to show how well um, humans perform on the same task. And I think that's really crucial for adoption, uh, especially you know as we uh, move into the imaging world and using deep learning, because we want to show where is the value of these models, and is it doing better or worse than humans can do. Um, and in our first couple papers that we'll read, I think two weeks from now, uh, we'll see some examples of comparisons to humans and you know where people uh, end up on those curves. Now, what do I? F uh, the next point is, what do I find most lacking when I am reviewing papers? Well, I find that people don't specify the experimental designs very well. Um, you know, did you use a k-fold cross-validation? Did you use a, uh, a single train validation test split? And what those are, and I think being explicit in, in what you actually did is helpful. Um, and usually it's helpful because it helps me to understand as a reader what kind of biases may exist in your design. Uh, and so usually when I'm writing papers, when I'm writing responses, that's one of the comments that I'll make. And as I mentioned before, uh, the second thing is descriptions of the population of, of the data that you used in the setting. Uh, those are really, really important uh, that people don't often contain in their papers. So the final point I want to make is, you know, what do I consider when I'm looking at a paper and seeing whether it's worth implementing? Um, at NYU or otherwise. Uh, the first is whether it's the same population as our patients. Um, and so this goes back to the descriptions of the population that I was talking about just uh, a second ago. But really the first thing I look for is say, okay, well, you know, is this, was the setting of this paper similar to our setting or is it different? Um, and really trying to get to this question of how well does this paper generalize to our population? The second question I ask is, is this clinically useful? Uh, and usually I bring together a group of clinicians uh, and find some stakeholders who can sort of define this problem. And are those stakeholders here? Do they exist? And do they think it's clinically useful? And if I get an okay there, then this may be something that we might want to implement. And the final thing I look for in papers are precision recall curves. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about receiver operating curves in the theoretical section, uh, but the one that I care about more than the receiver operating curve are precision recall curves. And these will measure sort of what is the trade-off between uh, sensitivity. So uh, out of all the patients that are identified, how many does my algorithm actually identify versus uh, the positive predictive value or the precision. So of the times when my model says that this patient has this particular um, condition, how often 
is it right? Um, and so that's essentially what I care about most. And I care about the positive predictive value the most because when the model makes a suggestion, I want it to be right, you know, say 90% of the time. And some of the models that we have running in practice here at NYU, we usually set the threshold at 80% uh, based on the interventions that we want to do. Uh, and so that's something really important to think about. And that's something that I would highlight too as being a radiologist, if you're consulting on you know these type of imaging projects, it's to really think about, well, what is the acceptable positive predictive value um, how often do you need to be? Does the system need to be right when it's making a recommendation? And that's something that can be only defined clinically and, and not by the actual machine learning or data scientist. So that concludes our discussion of the papers, uh, our two papers. So let's move on to some of the questions uh, from the readers. So this week I want to thank uh, Christopher Adgeton, uh, Michael Moore, and Linda Moy for putting together some questions. And we also had some additional questions asked by uh, Joseph Phillip on this section as well. Um, so I don't have time to uh, ask, uh, answer all the questions, but I thought I'd just address a couple of them that I thought were important. Um, so one question was about whether data alone is enough and really uh, combining knowledge uh, and data uh, in a way. And what is really the difference between the two? And I think the key point is to say, look, data is what it is. Um, and so if we have a collection of checks x-rays and we're trying to identify whether there's pneumonia in those x-rays or not, um, you know, we can, in one instance, we can just give those images to the classifier and let it try to figure out on its own what is pneumonia and what is not ammonia, uh, pneumonia. The other thing we can do is try to incorporate some knowledge into that process to help the classifier uh, learn quicker and not have to try to figure things out on its own. So, um, you know, we may say, well, you know, if you see, um, you know, a fluid line, um, and so how do we define that fluid line, uh, and how can we define that fluid line so that the classifier doesn't have to learn that on its own? Uh, maybe we can incorporate elements of the clinical history. Uh, so rather than you know giving it all the clinical history, which could contain a lot of noise, we can selectively choose sort of which uh, you know features or which types of clinical data are important uh, to do the classification. Um, so I think that's how you know we sort of combine knowledge with data uh, to try to build uh, better models. And this actually plays out as well in, out, in areas outside of imaging. Um, so uh, Sabre, and I think I mentioned this in the first uh, podcast with sabermetrics, uh, you know, when people are looking at baseball players um, and Moneyball and that kind of stuff. And what they realize is that, look, if you just look at the data alone, you can't build a great team just looking at data. Uh, and that you have to actually incorporate the knowledge of, you know, the, uh, the baseball managers uh, as well as the scouts. And if you put those two together, you can come up with a better outcome. But doing each of them alone may not necessarily give you the best output. So another question was about the reputation of uh, JMIR, uh, the General Medical Internet Research, uh, and and how reputable it is. Um, and so the General Medical Internet Research is definitely not one of these hokey um, uh, medical journals uh, that's you know, it's just sort of there to make money. Um, it really is a catch-all for some places where it's hard to publish uh, some journals, especially ones about, um, you know, that use internet data. Um, and I will, you know, typically uh, cite at least one or two papers in JMIR uh, every time I um, 
cite my own paper every time I write my own papers. Uh, and so they have good things to say. And a lot of my colleagues have uh, published there as well. So I consider it to be, you know, an okay journal, certainly not a great journal uh, in that sense. Uh, in terms of uh, medical machine learning and uh, what journals or organizations should people be most familiar with? Um, well, I think there are really two camps. Um, there's sort of computer science camp, uh, and then there's a sort of clinical applied camp. Uh, and on the computer science side, uh, journals don't tend to be the way that uh, most knowledge is disseminated. It's mostly through conference proceedings. So uh, conferences like IC, uh, ICML, so International Conference of Machine Learning, uh, NIPS, Neuro Intensive Processing Systems Conference, I think what is, is what it is. There's a new conference that just started uh, this year uh, in February called SysML, which focus on machine learning systems. Um, and uh, there's also ICLR, International Conference on Learning Representations. Uh, and these are all the field, these are conferences where imaging studies tend to be published. Uh, especially when it comes to general imaging. Uh, as far as on the clinical side and clinical applications, uh, if you're using clinical data, those type of conference, those tend to be, uh, there's AMIA, which is American Medical Informatics Association Conference. Uh, and there's also uh, JAMIA, which is the Journal of American Medical Informatics Association, uh, Biomedical Informatics uh, Journal, and the International uh, uh, medical Journal of Informatics. Uh, and those are sort of the three sort of top rated journals uh, in terms of clinical applications uh, of informatics. Another question was uh, if I agreed with the checklist uh, and these papers could get pretty large if all the items have to be addressed. And the answer is yes, I do. Um, and I think clinically what tends to happen is if you're writing for a clinical journal, they'll usually ask for, you know, some short, some fairly short synopsis, you know, that can be included in the actual journal and then have an appendix that includes all this additional information. Uh, and you'll see one paper that we'll review in two weeks where that's the case where, um, you know, there's a short sort of clinical portion, but then the appendix really concerned contains all the relevant items, additional relevant items uh, to really understand and, and, and evaluate the paper. One final question is uh, from the JMIR paper about uh, Textbox 3 and the, sort of the sample size that you need uh, to build good classifiers. Uh, and in that, they reference having 10 observations and that being sort of sufficient for the classification problem. So the right sample size is an area of ongoing research. Uh, no one, there is no strict guideline uh, similar to doing power analysis otherwise to say how much data that you actually need to do a classification. Um, and I think I mentioned this in the first lecture, in the first podcast as well. Um, you know, it just depends on the classification problem and how difficult or how much signal there is uh, in the data. Uh, if you have, you know, a perfectly sort of um, separated uh, data set, uh, one, you know, that has easily definable features, say, you know, you're trying to compare a person to a car or something like that, then you don't really need a lot of features uh, because, or need a lot of examples because the differences are quote-unquote obvious and the classifier should be able to learn that pretty well and pretty quickly. The problem is, is when you get into sort of subtle differences between two things. So if you're trying to learn a difference between, you know, um, 
a Honda, you know, sedan versus a Toyota sedan, right? And there you may need more sample because the differences are a lot more subtle, uh, and um, and you're going to need more data to try to identify those differences. But the question is, well, how much data do you need? And honestly, we only know through experimentation whether we have sufficient data and maybe what trajectories we're on. So sometimes we'll build these things called learning curves. And what we'll do is uh, we'll you know, take 100 examples, build a classifier, see our performance. Then take 500 examples, build a classifier, share performance, and take a thousand, and then you know 1,500, 2,000, and on the and we'll build a graph where on the x-axis we have the number of examples, on the y-axis we have the performance, and then we see whether we're our model is continuing to get better uh, as uh, our model improves, uh, as we add more data, and. Though it's not linear, right, and so it's not going to go on forever, and at some point models will tend to plateau off where, you know, either you hit the limits of the representation of the model where the, you know, the underlying algorithm, you know, can no longer model anything additional uh, because of limitations of the model itself. So an example of that is like a linear classifier. If you have nonlinear relationships, there's only so much you can do before you saturate, you know, you, before the, the, the plane that separates the two, the linear plane that separates the two data, the data, uh, the classifier, the two classifications is just as good as it's going to get. Um, and so we use that to try to give us a sense of, well, how much data is more data, if more data is going to, you know, give us more bang for the buck. Typically, uh, especially in deep learning, as you had more data, it just constantly improves and constantly gets better and better and better. So I'm not sure that we have reached a complete plateau uh, where the model just doesn't get any better at all. Um, however, um, you know, there's really no established methods for how much data and how much more additional data to have. So thank you, everyone. Uh, I think that concludes our session for today. Uh, and so uh, next time, we're going to sort of read a little bit about data sets and publicly available data sets uh, and explore some of those that are available that you can download uh, and talk about that. And then uh, in the week after that, we'll start moving into actual applications and reading actual papers of people applying deep learning and machine learning models to actual clinical or actual imaging tasks. Uh, both clinically and otherwise. So thank you all, and I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Bye.